Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers, and I'm sitting here with Mr. Odie, Odie Martinez. Martinez. Happy to be with you. Nice to be back. We had a couple of uh, weeks break here, and we're back rolling. I've got a couple of slides that I've introduced into <clears throat> our typical presentation that just talk a little bit about my background. Uh, first of all, I'm a professor of clinical psychology at a local university, California Southern University. We uh, have online programs in psychology where we have students who are doctoral students. Uh, I'm currently supervising about 15 doctoral students all over the planet. So they come from all around the world. Uh, it's an online university, so we're able to train psychologists all over the planet uh, via uh, virtually, virtually. Mm -hmm. And then our students have uh, internships in conventional locations locally wherever they are if they're in Africa or Southeast Asia or you name it wow. so that's part of what I do I've most of my adult career I've taught in uh, clinical psychology that's my background I have a doctorate in clinical psychology the second thing that I do is that I'm uh, active for the last 10 years as a recovery coach I'm just coming right now from Beginnings Treatment Center. They're one of the uh, sponsors of this uh, weekly podcast. So I want to uh, name them with appreciation. Just coming from a men's group. I mention this every week, probably. And I just want to mention that's what I do as well. So I work almost exclusively uh, working with individuals who are either actively in recovery or their loved ones who want to support them. So that's a bit of the work I do. I mention this because I think the context is important is that I come from a psychological background. So when we talk about matters related to addiction and recovery, here with my friend Odie, I'll be bringing in primarily a psychological perspective. There are other perspectives that are valid. Mm. My father, for example, was a biologically oriented psychiatrist, and his focus was very much on the medical uh, perspective, a biomedical perspective on addiction and recovery. He dealt a lot with addiction in his work in the prisons here in California. So that's, another, that's one other perspective. If I was a courtroom judge or an attorney, or a parole officer, I'd be looking at addiction from a uh, maybe a criminal justice perspective or law enforcement perspective, and that has great validity too. Uh, my wife, Colleen, is a marriage and family therapist, and she looks at addiction in the context primarily of relationships. We do discuss that here a fair bit because uh, both she and I have a background in psychology which focuses on the primacy of attachment or relationships. Mm -hmm. And then there are perspectives that are primarily spiritual in mind. And, and so a lot of the 12-step support programs, as well as faith-based programs, Celebrate Recovery, et cetera, mm -hmm. focus on addiction and recovery very much from a primarily a spiritual perspective, sometimes employing the Bible or other spiritual uh, perspectives. And I believe that all of these uh, lead to Rome. All of these are of value. But I'm naming the context out of which I speak. And uh, the material that Odie and I discuss each week is primarily psychological in background. I hope it's of service to you. And, and when I say you, I think of you as being uh, possibly somebody who's struggling with addiction yourself or perhaps in recovery. I want to support you in that process for sure. Uh, it's virtually all the work I do, and I care a lot about it. I also want to support you if you're the loved one of somebody who's either battling addiction or in, let's say, early recovery and that you need support because I'm hoping the material pertains to you as well. And I, I prepare the material each week with you in mind. And then finally, if you're a provider of health care, if you're, if you're a therapist, if you're a nurse, if you're somebody who works with those that are in recovery, uh, from addiction. I'm hoping that this material is also pertinent to you. So the wish is to touch uh, uh, anybody who listens in in a way that hopefully is of value. Speaking of that, and in honor of Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra, my two co-producers, I want to invite you actively to engage today uh, with Odie and I as we're presenting this material and we'll be dialoguing uh, later on. I have a couple of exercises that I'll be asking you to participate in. 
and really invite your active interaction. And you can, you can interact by um, writing into the chat function if you're on Facebook. Uh, Austin, are there other ways that they can do that through YouTube or? Uh, uh, Absolutely, yeah, YouTube. Okay, YouTube, you can also write in uh, a, a response or a question through YouTube. Any other venues? Uh, they can write a comment directly in the Ask an Addiction Specialist group. Okay, okay. So you can write in, in the Facebook group, the Ask an Addiction Specialist. That one I mentioned, I believe. So there's there are multiple forms for you to reach out. And thanks to Austin. I, you heard his voice right there. He is alive and kicking. Austin will send up on the screen a teleprompter uh, for Odie and I to respond to your questions. And we like doing that. It keeps it more of a dialogue. So please feel invited. Also, invite your friends. If you like what's going on here, invite your friends in real time today to join us. We'll be on for the next hour or so, uh, as well as each Wednesday we meet. We had a, couple, a break over the July 4th, and then I was uh, gone last week. But we're back now and for... Uh, forever. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Wednesdays at three o'clock Pacific time, you're welcome to join us. We've been moving for the last several weeks and months, moving through material that pertains to addiction recovery from the perspective of looking at the impact of shame, both on uh, the, as the roots of addiction, but also in terms of sustaining addiction, looking at how uh, shame is related to, to uh, relapse, to addictive behaviors, as well as how uh, important it is to get around the bend, so to speak, with addiction if we're going to sustain successful recovery from addiction. By the way, as I'm talking about addiction right now, and I'm thinking of conversations that you've shared, Odie, which I appreciate, mm -hmm. addiction can take many forms. It can take the form of being addicted to a substance, alcohol, and other drugs. 25% of the American adult population uh, is addicted to substance, and that includes alcohol, nicotine, and all other uh, addictive drugs. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a s startling statistic, perhaps. One out of four adults in America are addicted to at least one substance. But we really open it up when we talk about behavioral addictions. It can be addictions to gambling, addictions to uh, compulsive spending, addictions to compulsive sexuality, um, addiction, uh, addictions related to eating, uh, 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 overeating, etc. cetera. Uh, I want to include in here addictions to the internet. I just read an article this morning looking at the impact. New research has come out about the impact on uh, uh, children and adolescents' uh, attentional abilities owing to uh, online involvement, games, uh, 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 social media. This is going to be a well-duh <laughs> to the audience, <laughs> but I want to mention this because it just came out in one of the major journals uh, is is that uh, uh, that yes we have verified that that uh, the more a, 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 a child or adolescent engages in um, online social media uh, gaming etc uh, primarily through smartphones uh, there's a direct uh, linear correlation to ADHD symptoms attention deficit mm -hmm. symptoms and so this is the first study and it's a large study several thousand. Uh, uh, kids across this age range, um, and so um, definitely that uh, definitely we can have virtual addictions as well. So is <laughs> when we open up the aperture to include behavioral addictions, turns out that 90% of adults uh, responding in the U.S. agree to having at least one behavioral addiction going on right now. And as I sometimes tease and talk about it, I think the other 10% did not understand the question. So it's just to say that we're talking about a phenomenon that's universal. 
And that means that we're all in the soup together. And so these conversations about addiction, although most of my work these days is in and around addiction, addiction and recovery from substance addiction, drug addiction, I don't want to narrow it so much that you feel like you're excluded because I want it to be inclusive of all of us. In fact, the way that we talk about addiction here, Odie, and you remember this, mm -hmm. is that we talk about it in terms of its origin, its etymology, in the root word, which is from Latin, is the word addictus. And addictus simply means slave. When we open up addiction to talk about enslavement, it's something that all of us can relate to, is that we're all enslaved to certain compulsive behaviors, or at least virtually all of us, except for the 10% that didn't understand the question, and that we could all bear to heal from this. And one of the central theses of the last several weeks or even months of podcasts here with Franz and Austin and Odie is that shame is one of the psychological roots mm -hmm. of addiction. It both it serves as a origin of addiction as well as sustaining or perpetuating addiction and that we must address it if we're going to sustain sobriety mm -hmm. so we'll be talking more into that in just a few moments i just want to remind you that last time we met we talked about living creatively and today we're going to talk about living uncreatively <laughs> we're going to talk about how it is that we lose ourselves and what would it take for us to find ourselves again and so that's the title of today how we lose and find ourselves I want to start by talking about shame <clears throat> and uh, this first slide, shame rewards our losing ourselves. I don't think it makes sense to go much further until we talk maybe about what shame is. And I'm going to start by asking my good friend Odie, just in, in whatever words that you think of, how do you understand shame, Odie? And then we'll elaborate on it and then we'll move on. Well, for shame, for me, uh, understanding it would be a sense of feeling bad about myself of um, mm -hmm. to be a little bit more specific uh, I'm, I'm no good that's yeah like that's really the it. root of it yeah is, that's uh, right. just feeling that yeah yeah we mistake oftentimes Odie and we've talked about this and I know you know this we mistake things that you do or that I do we mistake those behaviors for being all of who we are mm -hmm. and it's not to say that we don't do things that in popular language would say this is shameful behavior and I'm okay if you say shameful as long as you put quotes around it or turn it into an italicized comment because there's a problem with shame as we understand it psychologically and we do make a distinction between guilt on the one hand and shame on the other and Odie's already given us half of that shame makes me be bad mm -hmm. guilt I should have about things that I do that are bad but to equate what I do with who I am mm -hmm. is one of the central fallacies that gets us into real trouble and I'll tell you why uh, I call it rightful guilt. If I step on your toe, I should feel bad about that. I should feel guilty. That's right. rightful guilt. Because how else am I going to change my behavior? Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to change my behavior, what motivates me is the unpleasantness of guilt. None of us like how guilt feels. Mm -hmm. But when guilt crosses over into shame, which I understand the way I'm using it here is that shame is toxic as opposed to guilt, which is actually reparative right. is that guilt is toxic because guilt will actually shut me down I'll move from stepping on your foot as that having been a mistake mm -hmm. and apologizing and making amends and making sure I don't do it again mm -hmm. to shame which will stop me in my tracks makes me bad how'd you put it it it, it uh, I'm no good I'm no good it makes yeah. me no good makes me no good and what that does psychologically, it paralyzes us. Mm -hmm. You all have heard of a fight-or-flight reaction. Most of us are familiar with that. Well, actually, the brain center that's involved in the fight-or-flight reaction, you have to add a third quality, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. 
a flight, fight, flight, or freeze response. Fight, you go after the person. Flee, you hightail it the other way. Freeze is exactly what it sounds like. It's where you stop in your tracks. I grew up in Central California where we had possums. We called it playing possum. <laughs> because when a possum is threatened, it'll just curl up and act like it's dead. Yeah. Well, that's what shame does, does to us. In fact, it mm -hmm. paralyzes our life force, and so we look like we're dead. And uh, it's extremely non-productive in terms of working through my having stepped on your feet. Mm. It also will shut me down in terms of other uh, areas because it's non-selective, which is to say that shame covers a multitude of motivations and it effectively freezes us. Mm. So let's talk about some of the ways that, that shame uh, leads to a freeze response. And as I was talking earlier with you, Odie, what we're talking about today is a little bit counterintuitive. So I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking hats and join me. I'm going to do the best I can to explain this. This is slippery what we're talking about for two reasons. The first reason, and I have a slide later on, but we're going to preempt that. Shame is what's referred to psychologically as the unthought known. The unthought known. Now, what the heck does that mean? It means that we know it. You know it in your body. Mm -hmm. In fact, I oftentimes will ask clients, where do you feel shame in your body? I did earlier today. I led a group earlier today, and I said, where do you feel shame in your body? And I'll tell you some of their responses. I get hot. One person said I get hot. Another person said I get nauseous. Mm. Uh, another person said I want to crawl into a hole. So there's all these physical reactions to shame. There's a multitude of reactions. Some people get tense. Some people look mm -hmm. down, can't make eye contact. Yeah. There's all these responses, so we know it in our bodies. Yeah. But what's tricky about shame is it's hard to think about it clearly because it really uh, emanates from the part of our brain between our ears, the emotional center of our brain that actually precedes conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. So I can feel ashamed with you, and my first indication will I'll feel like, for example, an embarrassed response. And for me, I'll flush, I'll get red when I get embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I'll also feel slightly queasy in my stomach, mm -hmm. like this uh, other person said. I'll feel that, and I won't think, the, I won't think. well, I was just ashamed by what you said. Mm -hmm. I'll feel it in my body, and it's only later reflection that can take what was unthought and bring it into the realm of being examined. Yeah. So it's tricky today to talk about shame because if it's true, it's automatic, and it, and it actually precedes conscious thought oftentimes. You can reflect on it afterwards, but yeah. it actually happens in a moment. There are biological reasons for that that we won't go, on to go into today other than to say that it's fast. Mm -hmm. It's fast. The second reason I think that today's conversation is difficult is that it goes against our instincts to imagine that we'd have some part of ourselves that would actually shoot us in our own foot. And this mm -hmm. is what you and I were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start with this first slide, which is that shame rewards our losing ourself. That's back a couple of slides, I think, my friend. Shame rewards our losing ourself. So I want you to reflect on this for just a second. How would it be that we have something inside of ourselves that actually reinforces my not being all I can be? Hmm. That's really what we're talking about. It rewards me for losing myself. In the next slide, we put, we put it this way. Shame withdraws from our true self, from mm -hmm. your true self. Yeah. It withdraws. It wants, you to, it wants you to withdraw from that, so it takes you away from that. Yeah. I think about it sometimes. It's almost like shame is allergic to you being all who you can be, Odie. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And the same for me. Now, why would we have something in us that's allergic to our succeeding? 
Okay, I'll answer it. <laughs> oh, I, thought, I didn't know if you were asking me. It, or <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. It was a rhetorical question. Is that, uh, especially early on in our development, there are blueprints laid down in terms of, of how we feel about ourselves, in terms of self-worth, let's say. And to the extent that you've been rewarded for succeeding mm. and encouraged not to fail, you, d you end up having a pretty strong blueprint or template, let's say, mm -hmm. that motivates you to move forward. Mm. But none of us grew up in perfect childhoods. Yep. And the reason our childhoods matter is they'd relate to this blueprint. Mm. I don't, you know, people will wonder, why do we talk about our childhoods? You know, there's nothing magic about childhood other than the fact that the earliest templates that get laid down there oftentimes service across our lives unless mm. we intervene. Yeah. And so those unexamined or unthought templates guide our behaviors. And so what happens if you have caregiving others, whether it's parents or siblings or other significant pe people in life, what happens if you have them put your light under a bushel basket? They don't want to have you shine. Mm. And so we don't want Odie to be too successful. <laughs> or what happens when they pull out the slats when you achieve something and come home and want to brag about it and they shame you? They yeah. say, you know, you're getting too big for your britches there, Mr. Odie. <laughs> or maybe even even more pernicious, what happens where significant voices in our lives seem to pay more attention to us when we're uh, uh, on the down and out, mm. when we're feeling blue? Yeah. And so there actually is a way, I, the example comes to mind, if you have a parent or other significant caregiving figure that mainly gives you attention when you're sick, mm. there's nothing wrong about that. Yeah. But if that's when you get your most attention, in fact, you don't get it when you're healthy, you don't get it when you're exercising your strengths, you get it when you're in need and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the word pathetic. When you're in that place and you get rewarded, what do you think happens to that child? They'll go yeah. towards that, right? Yeah. It's like, if I know our oxygen is coming and it's coming from being crippled emotionally yeah. or behaviorally, why wouldn't I go there? So you begin to lay down strands. It's not a single interaction that leads to this blueprint. It's hundreds and then thousands of interactions mm -hmm. that reinforce a certain way of viewing yourself. Yeah. So insofar as all of us grow up in imperfect backgrounds, all have sinned and fall short, mm -hmm. insofar <laughs> as that's universal for us, all of us have vulnerabilities around this business of succeeding. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't this way, we'd all there'd be all be a straight line between my aspirations, that is what I'm motivated to achieve, and my achieving it and receiving reward. Mm. And in comes the fly in the ointment, which is some ways that will sabotage ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that gets us into the conversation today, even though it's slightly counterintuitive. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something, and I've mentioned it here before. When I talk to the individuals I'm talking to who are early in recovery, they're all motivated to recover, many of them from repeated relapses to severe uh, addictive behaviors, including uh, addiction to heroin, addiction to methamphetamine, etc. As I'll ask them, I'll say, even in the midst of your addiction, Bob, Odie, did you experience, have you experienced some, I'll call it small, still voice, mm -hmm. still small voice, which is from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, mm -hmm. this image of, let's say, of God, yeah. did you have some voice on your shoulder, even amidst active addiction, that cautioned you or even reprimanded you not to persist? 
And then when I ask for a show of hands, it's virtually unanimous, yeah. which is surprising. You might think, well, if I'm in the midst of a meth addiction or a heroin addiction, are you serious that there's a still small voice going, don't do that, Odie, don't do that, Bobby. But what I get is I get everybody saying that they have that. And so I want to locate that and name that as who we really are. It's mm -hmm. our truest selves. Yeah. That's the image of God, if you, if, if you want to use that language. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the Eastern traditions, they call this the original face before you were born. Right. It's your immortal soul, your spirit. I like to call it the pearl of great price. It's who you yeah. are. It's why, you're, it's why you were born. It's why you're here. It's what you're to achieve. And that voice will, will try to get our attention even amidst our addictions. Mm -hmm. Do you have a thought about that, sir? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, kind of hit the head on the nail, or how are you, <laughs> the yeah, saying yeah, goes. Yeah, and yeah. That is the saying. Yeah, because uh, I can think back even when I wasn't uh, Christian. You okay. know, I, mm -hmm. I was still in my addiction. I, mm -hmm. I would hear that voice, you yes. know, saying, this isn't right. And even after um, going through it, um, after the deed has been done, so to speak, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, yeah. is when... I'd probably hear it the most, yeah. you know, and yeah. just feeling, yeah. feeling that feeling of what I'm doing isn't correct, yeah. but yeah. not listening yeah. to that voice. So, did that voice ever slide over? The voice after the deed was done. Did that voice ever slide over into, uh, you? Therefore, you're a bad person. Did you have um, that experience? It can, and that's the reason I'm asking. It might not right. be for you, but I'm trying to think. So you feel bad about whatever it is you've done, whatever right. addictive behavior you, you've engaged in. And does that voice ever slide for you, or historically, is that slid into? It has, into, yes. Yeah. Now that I think about Can it, you, that you mentioned that, that way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's told me that uh, this is how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't really do anything about it. Mm -hmm. It's normal. Everybody else does it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're fine. Don't worry about it. That's great. Keep doing it. That's great. Both so, of those are really great. Yeah. I really appreciate you naming both of those. One is that I should have said this earlier, but you, you've just put your finger on it, mm -hmm. is that when we talk about a freeze response, mm -hmm. part of the problem with the paralysis that comes with shame is that it voids all hope. Mm -hmm. There's no hope of changing, and shame <laughs> reminds us of that. So you can forget yeah. about changing. And then I really like your second piece, too, which is that who wants to live in a hopeless despair? And so yeah. it comes in and says, that's okay, everybody else does it. Mm -hmm. It makes it normal. <laughs> and you can, see, uh, you can see why people personify this as being evil or wily, mm -hmm. wily or deceptive or scheming, uh, because it's so convincing. Yeah. Uh, I can't really change this. I'm no good. I can't change this. But... Whew, Thank goodness everybody else does it, so yeah. I guess we're okay for the time being. And it's it's more convincing when it's your own voice sometimes. Yeah, it is. So. Yeah, it's more powerful inside, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what we're talking about here is that shame, feeling feeling like there's no hope, feeling no good, mm -hmm. that it's a central enemy of this still small voice inside. Mm -hmm. uh, we can call it your conscience, however you want to understand it. All right. And what does shame tell us? What, what's, what, what is its message? We've already talked about this. It tells us I'm no good. Mm -hmm. I'm bad. I'm broken. I'm defective. I'm beyond hope. Now, here's, here's another piece that can be tricky or counterintuitive. This shaming voice, which can be very powerful for lots of reasons, not the least of which is you get involved in a vicious cycle of engaging in shameful behavior, mm -hmm. feeling bad about yourself, which confirms the fact that you're bad because you just did this behavior. And so what do you do to help feel better about the shame? 
re-engage with the addictive behavior. And so you can see the vicious cycle that gets going there. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get out of that loop. And so in that loop of shame, it really supports our turning our back on this still small voice. Mm. And so we can get further and further away from it by the kind of deception that you're talking about. And there's not a person listening today that doesn't understand that any more than you and I understand that. We all get that. Uh, another image of that is that shame pulls the rug out whenever I'm really moving towards my true self. And let me ask, mm -hmm. let me, let me ask uh, our listeners to, to think about this for a second. Can you think of a time when you've been close to something that you really wished for, you dreamed, you dreamed of, maybe something that you've worked hard to get, and then you've done something for whatever reason, it's oftentimes not fully conscious why we've done it, you've done something to undermine the very thing that you've aimed for. Think of it relationally, think of it in your occupation, you can think of it in school, where you've done something that actually sabotaged what it is that you'd poured your whole heart and soul into achieving. In other words, where the rug got pulled out when you were actually going to be truest to your dreams. Let me open that up here if, if you're willing to talk into that, Odie, and I'll join you in that. Um, hmm. Well, the first thing that came to mind is that when I first came here to California, uh, the, one of the dreams was to become an actor. Hmm. And so uh, I went into... Um, I, I put out some... I don't know what you would call it, like applications, I guess, or whatever, mm -hmm. to some parts for a commercial, and I got a call back, and um, and then I didn't get the part, but I was pretty much very close to getting it. Mm -hmm. I was like the second choice, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. obviously went with the other person. Mm -hmm. But uh, I started thinking to myself, well, maybe I'm not good enough for this. You know, maybe it's the way I look, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I first started the venture of trying to get into the acting world, yep. I was just, um, like one of the goals was just at least to get close as possible, yeah. you know, just to have yeah. that yeah. Uh, as encouragement to continue yeah. on. But yes. when it actually happened, it had the reverse effect. I I got discouraged and then... When what happened? When uh, I didn't get the... When you got so close. Yeah, yeah. I got yeah. that close, but yeah. it didn't happen. Yeah. So yeah. I got discouraged and yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah, forget about this. So. What would it have taken, do you think... I know it didn't go this way, but what would it have taken inside you mm -hmm. to not be so discouraged that you gave it up? Do you have a sense of that? Is there something that would have made a difference? I think, you know, it's funny that you asked that because I've thought about that before and mm -hmm. sometimes I think that uh, there's a part of, uh, like, I've thought of this of childhood. Maybe mm -hmm. there's something in my childhood okay. that, uh, mm -hmm. that, that happened where... Um, that I got close to something and then I got discouraged from it but I haven't been able to put my finger on it but just to answer your question completely I think if I would have just uh, just taken it for what it was and seen it like mm -hmm. as uh, as not just a stepping stone but as a pretty big achievement because yeah. I was really you close were two. That's, when I heard it that's what I heard yeah. you come out here and you come number two and I'm thinking that but I'm not you in that situation yeah. that's amazing that you did that yeah. but it, it got processed or metabolized in a way that was, was, was uh, the opposite it was like it was a failure yeah exactly yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate your naming this around something might have happened in your childhood. Mm -hmm. My sense, occasionally I'll hear, I'll hear stories. In fact, I did this week with somebody I'm working with mm -hmm. where there's like a single traumatic event, literally, mm -hmm. yeah. that, that is like a 
private Nagasaki. It's like an atomic <laughs> bomb dropped. And it can be a single event. I like that. That's the private yeah. Nagasaki. Yeah. That's the exception to the rule for me in my experience clinically, as well as mm -hmm. personally. My sense is, I hate this image, but I'm going to share it anyway. Mm -hmm. This image of a death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it isn't a single Nagasaki. It's actually a bunch of mini insults and injuries mm. that pile up. There's, it's like the idea of cumulative trauma. They pile up and eventually we end up with a blueprint, let's say, or a template mm -hmm. that skews us towards failure. And it wasn't like a massive atomic explosion. Right. It, it, I don't know your history, so I don't know and I don't need to inquire right now. No, yeah. I just want to suggest <laughs> that for most often I think it's a function of cumulative trauma. So let me talk about that for just a second. Is that uh, uh, everyone's probably aware of, of uh, the Kaiser Permanente system, uh, hospitals and so on. They did a massive study in recent years that looked at what they call adverse childhood experiences. Mm. They call the ACE studies. Mm. And what they found in these studies is that you vary across thousands and thousands of subjects, by the way, mm -hmm. that people vary in terms of how many adverse childhood experiences they went through growing up. Hmm. And so let me define that a little bit. When they talk about adverse childhood experiences, they're talking about experiences that might have been, uh, all of them were by definition traumatic in mm -hmm. the sense of painful and sometimes overwhelming. And they conclude examples of, of uh, abandonment, mm -hmm. where parents abandoned or others abandoned the individual, mm -hmm. uh, or on that continuum where there was neglect where they didn't actually outwardly abandon, but there just wasn't much attention being given. Right. And then this includes also all the examples that you can think of of abuse, mm. all forms of physical abuse, emotional abuse, certainly including sexual abuse. And so there was a massive study that looked at this, and now the correlations were made with various kinds of consequences of these adverse childhood experiences. Mm. You're not gonna be surprised by this, but heightened levels of depression Mm. anxiety, all kinds of medical disorders, including longevity, which is really sobering. Mm -hmm. it, it, it affects longevity to the extent you've been exposed. If there's no intervention and you've been exposed to horrible trauma, it does affect you, not only psychologically, but right. also physically. And certainly in the domain, is there somebody who wrote in something? Yes. It's not showing up there, my friend. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, they wrote in invisible ink. Austin's, Austin's <laughs> writing a note here. Somebody's commented. I'll keep plugging ahead, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, get to your question in just a second. One of the correlations, FFF. <laughs> One of the correlations that was found that's really striking to me, working in the field of addiction and recovery, is that virtually a hundred people, a hundred percent of people that are in the so-called addicted population, have suffered an inordinate highly high level of, of adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. Again, this may not be that mind-blowing of, of, of a conclusion, except that this research really verifies that. So when we talk about your experiences growing up or my experiences growing up, mm -hmm. is that there's something about these childhood experiences that lay down the groundwork that can lead to us having the experience that you just talked about, Odie. Mm, yeah. you, go into, you go into a series of auditions, you actually come very close to succeeding, and whereas for maybe the next person it might try not, might not translate as failure and I'm going to give up, mm -hmm. for you it might well have done that, or for yeah. me it might well do that. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of credence been given to this idea of these early foundational experiences that they form the way that we deal with frustration mm -hmm. and disappointment and even loss or failure, yeah. is that it stamps deeply and we can't get over it so easily. Mm -hmm. 
So when I talk with people who are early in recovery and I introduce this material, what I'll ask them is I'll say, what, what, what do you understand to be the number one trigger for relapse to addictive behaviors? And at this point, people have been programmed to know it's stress. Yeah. Stress is the overarching <laughs> category. One person today said, well, it's boredom. Well, boredom is stressful mm -hmm. for most people. And so the umbrella term is stress, and it can manifest in different firm, in different ways. In fact, we've talked about shame as being this feeling of no good. Yeah. Research that's been done and summarized by a, a, what they call a meta-analysis at Harvard University. A meta-analysis means they studied 200 studies that looked at what causes the highest level of stress in you and me, Odie. Mm. And across the population, it typically is one of these two things. A threat to my being socially accepted, mm. passing the audition. Right. <laughs> and or a threat to my self-esteem, uh, my feeling okay about myself. And I don't know how you separate those two out. I actually think of those as two sides of the coin yeah. of shame, is that not getting, not getting the job, not getting the, the yes, the thumbs up, right. means I wasn't accepted by them, I wasn't approved by them ultimately, and B, that goes right into my self-worth, my feelings mm -hmm. of self-esteem. Yeah. And so there's nothing that will kick up stress hormones more than we're, we're going old school. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to old school in just a second. That's funny. Austin, we're actually using paper and pen. You can write, brother. That's amazing. <laughs> we'll get back to this question in just a second. And so when I ask clients who are in early recovery from addiction, what's the number one trigger for relapse? It's stress. And stress is rooted oftentimes in these early templates. We're talking about shame or less than optimal responses from our early environment. And so when you go through this experience, it's extremely stressful. It's no accident that you shut down or want to go away from that. It's too painful. Yeah. And we all relate to that to one degree or another. You have right. your history. I have my history. Right. But, uh, and, and, and then when I ask clients, well, what do you do to manage that stress? I'm talking to a group of people that are in early recovery from serious drug addiction. Right. Well, you know what they're going to say. I use. They in fact, use. somebody over yeah. today to the right said, I get high. Yeah. And I said, that's exactly right. You know a short-term... Short-term antidote to that feeling yeah. of feeling like I'm no good, uh, we can get there via our yeah. addictions. More to follow in just a second, but we have a handwritten, <laughs> all the way from long away, we have a handwritten question here for Odie and me. This person says, I look back and see I sabotaged my career because I didn't know how to ask for support or mentoring. Mm. Didn't think I was worthy. I now see that as part of my template of shame. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's exactly, that's very well said. That's exactly what we're yeah. talking about. And how do we, uh, this person says, I didn't know how to ask for support or mentoring. If we tie that into this idea of the blueprint, if we haven't experienced that, if we haven't experienced people pumping oxygen our way mm -hmm. when we go through challenging auditions, et cetera, in our lives, yeah. then how do we learn how to ask for it? It's not assumed. And so we, get, we develop kind of a status quo. The normal is I don't get support, and I sure as heck don't ask for support. Yep. And without that support, we're left to our own devices, and those quickly can turn south. And they did for you in this example, and your example is universal. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate it, Odie, yeah, all your examples, because they're fully universal, what we're talking about here. And so, uh, as this individual says, I didn't turn for mentoring or support. Why is that? Because I didn't feel like I was worthy of it. Mm. You weren't worthy, you know, coming in second place, you weren't worthy of continuing on. You mm -hmm. had failed and something yeah. closed the door on that. So I really do believe that this is uh, a way to understand in a very powerful, personal, physical, emotional way how it is that shame can form a very deep, deep blueprint. What I appreciate about this individual sharing is that what we're doing is we're taking the unthought known 
that which is very subtle to waking consciousness and bringing it into conscious awareness. When Odie shares his story, it takes this kind of this kind of ephemeral, hard to nail down feeling, and it names it. This is an event that happened. This is what I felt like, and these were the consequences of it. Mm -hmm. And shame has this way of paralyzing or freezing us, and it did for you. Yeah. And I have I have a whole under list of examples for myself as well, <laughs> including turning to addiction to help yeah. salve that at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. It's like a temporary antidote to shame. Now, in the face of all of this, in the face of our past frustrations and traumas that we've experienced in our lives, there's probably this still small voice that wanted to succeed, that mm -hmm. wanted to succeed. And what I want to suggest is that that still small voice that's, that moved you here, mm -hmm. that wanted you to become an actor, I would imagine that still small voice was there. Notice I'm saying still and small, because it was still and it was small. The problem is, is that it can be overwhelmed by shame. Yeah. In fact, shame would be happy to just smother that still small voice, and it does. Mm -hmm. It may have done that for you. It's certainly done that for me in my own life. Yeah. Uh, Jesus talks about this in the New Testament in terms of putting a bushel over the light, a bushel mm -hmm. basket over the light. Mm -hmm. It just effectively darkens you. Yeah. It darkens you from your, from your radiance, from shining. Shame intervenes. Shame, shame comes in with certain messages that are all derivations of I'm no good. Mm. One thing is that I don't deserve happiness. Because if I'm no good, I haven't done anything to deserve happiness. In fact, I may be allergic to happiness. <laughs> and this is another one of those counterintuitive realizations. <laughs> if, if you find yourself being suspicious of your own happiness, the way I think about it sometimes in my own life is I feel like the other shoe's going <laughs> to drop. So if I get too happy, you know... Uh, no telling what's going to happen. It ain't going to be good. Does that make sense? That makes yeah, sense. it's funny how you mention that. Just uh, I can relate to it, and just um, uh, I feel like I've said this to myself before. It just uh, I <laughs> just feeling uh, euphoria yeah. at some point, and just saying inside my head, something's wrong. I'm way too happy. That's right exactly. Now, that's you know? exactly it right there. So, that's good. But luckily, that doesn't happen yeah. as I used to. But okay, okay, good. Yeah. We can cure this. Yeah. We, can, we can heal from this, that's for sure. That There's hope here, for sure. Shame wouldn't have us buy that. Yeah. In fact, shame's next uh, message to us is just give up hope now. Mm. Give up hope. Now, why would there be some part of our psyche that would say give up hope? My way of understanding is, to, is that there's an equilibrium inside, and it's tied to this template idea. If I have a blueprint that has been my life, that's, that's normal, that's normal, that blueprint is what I follow. And if I follow it, maybe I can just kind of squeak by. So for example, <laughs> why would I face disappointment? This individual said, I didn't reach out to mentors or for, or for support. Why would I reach out if I'm gonna be disappointed? Because disappointment hurts so bad. Mm -hmm. So this blueprint says, don't reach out, Bob. Don't right. reach out, Odie. And so if I don't do that, guess what? I don't get so disappointed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep my potential at a very low bandwidth because without support, I'm kind of limited. Yeah. But at least I don't have to deal with the ravaging pain of being disappointed yet again and again. I think of an archetypal shame-producing interaction is the child that runs home from school excited, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, brother, brother, whatever like that, mm -hmm. brings in a paper or an assignment or an achievement, and that parent responds by ridiculing or ignoring the child. Mm. The child is radiating achievement, radiating joy, mm. success. And if the parent doesn't respond to that in kind, 
there's an extreme sensitivity to that because it's very painful. So from this to whoop, like this to shame, it doesn't take very many of those experiences to learn that I don't want to feel that way. Yeah. It's extraordinarily painful. We already established that shame is associated with the highest levels of stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. Mm -hmm. The highest levels, which is, as one client of mine said, none of us can stand barbecuing in our own adrenaline. Mm -hmm. None of us can stand that. So we'll find ways to protect ourselves. And this guiding template, this guiding blueprint for our lives says, don't go there, Odie. Don't go there, Bob. And so we'll avoid that and in the process sell ourselves short. Mm -hmm. But you can understand, yeah. shame is actually wanting to protect us. Unfortunately, as one client said today, it actually protects us from our true selves. Mm -hmm. It protects us from our potential. Yeah. This is the point, and, and I've mentioned this before, this is the point at which our addictive behaviors come in because they can also be a s significant, short-term, immediate antidote to the pain of shame. Mm -hmm. So I ask you as our audience uh, to reflect on this in your own lives. Can you think of times that you've turned to addiction as consolation for the pain of shame? The pain of failure, mm -hmm. the pain of no being no good. I just ask you to reflect on that for just a minute. The example I gave today in one of my groups is that I asked the group and I said, this is politically incorrect, but what's the most effective way to change a child's behavior? Well, at least in the short term, the best way to do that is uh, violence. Mm -hmm. aggression yeah. if, it's obviously politically correct uh, incorrect to say that but but punishing a child is very effective in changing a child's behavior in the, mm -hmm. in the moment because the child who what child wants to be abused what child wants to be uh, uh, violated okay. right. the problem is what the problem is that that's a short-term very short-term solution yeah. that has massive long-term uh, consequences that mm -hmm. are negative yeah. And so I asked the group today, what's the long-term consequence? And somebody said, if you've been if, if somebody's been aggressive towards you like that, like a parenting figure, you end up wanting to kill them. Mm -hmm. It ends up actually breeding more aggression and violence as well as uh, resistance. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's a short-term, you know, if, if you shock me electrically, I'll probably jump too. If you keep doing that, eventually I'm going to shut down or attack you. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to work. Yeah. Well, I feel the same thing with shame and, and, and its antidote, which is addiction. Addiction mm -hmm. works in the short-term. <laughs> Let me ask you, dear Odie, what would be one downside of addiction? If addiction helps me in the moment to feel less pain, less cortisol and adrenaline-fueled shame, what would be the long-term downside to any addictive behavior, whether it's to substance or behaviors? Well, where can I start? <laughs> the list is long. Yeah, okay, just give us one. Throw us a bone here. Just, just one. <laughs> Relationships so obviously yeah. a big one, yeah. you know, the first yeah. thing that comes to mind because that's, uh, I think that affects uh, the quickest yeah. that you see the effects of when you're addicted to yeah. either a substance or behavior, you know, yeah. Yeah. and um, and you see that by whether it's uh, arguments or um, just, uh, you know, I guess just. There you go. That's yeah, that one. Yeah, the arguments. Yeah. As I'm listening to what I'm thinking about is in the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatry and Psychology, mm -hmm. the DSM, um, it discusses substance use disorder and it describes it. This is the Bob Weather shorthand, but it's my feeling compelled to do something. In other words, I can't stop something, mm -hmm. and it's having negative impact on what? It's having negative, negative impact on my relationships and my work. Yeah. 
add school to that. And so here I'm doing something that's patently self-destructive to relationships and I cannot stop. So that's really built in to the diagnostic nomenclature for addiction. Mm -hmm. And you're describing it right now. That's one of the first things that, that gives. Freud had this phrase, zu lieben und zu arbeiten. Lieben in German means love. Arbeiten means work, to love and to work. Mm -hmm. And so addiction, enslavement, addictus, affects our ability to love and to work. Mm -hmm. That's shorthand right there. Oh. Let's say that we're super heroic. Let's say that you're super heroic <laughs> with this example. And so that you, that you find the gumption to face this loss, mm -hmm. you know, coming in second in this audition. Let's say that you find it inside of yourself to, to face it and want to override this. What do you think shame does to that motivation? It kills it. It kills it. it. Yeah. It murders and yeah. throws it over the cliff, sets yeah. it on fire. Yeah. And yeah. Shame is no friend of that of that inside of you, the instinct that would say, right. you know, you, you've been knocked down, and you go, okay, I'm going to try to get back up like this. Shame will keep us down. It will kick us and keep us down. Because yeah. shame's voice, again, is you don't deserve to be happy, so don't head that direction. I'll mm -hmm. make sure we strangle that one off right now. <laughs> and it also encourages us to give up now. Yeah. And it's very deceptive the way that you talked about it. It can convince me that it's okay to do this. It's okay to give up on myself, you know, because basically, what, everybody else is doing that yeah, too? exactly. And there's a sad <laughs> truth to that to a great extent, which is sad. Yeah. So that feeling of giving up on ourselves, again, the antidote to that is our addictions. Yeah. That's our addictive behaviors. So we're talking about a vicious cycle here. Yes, we are, dear Franz. <laughs> And it doesn't matter where you start with the vicious cycle, which is to say if we start with addiction, addictus, enslave, enslavement, I'm enslaved to anything that helps me feel better with this pain. Mm. And the vicious cycle is this, is that I'm rewarded inside myself. I'm rewarded for deserting myself. Mm. That sounds crazy to me. Yeah. You know, but you're going to desert yourself? That happens. sounds crazy. But it happens all the time. This yeah. is what shame does to <laughs> us. And so... What do we do with that? We want to feel better, so we self-medicate. Mm -hmm. One of the central hypotheses in addiction medicine is the self-medication hypothesis. I don't think that very many of us start down the road of addictive behaviors, whether it's with substance or, or process addictions, without some reason. And most often that reason is to feel better about something that causes us pain. Mm -hmm. Either I feel like you're going to reject me, or I feel lousy about myself, I feel no good, mm -hmm. and I want to feel better, and so we turn to addictive behaviors. And so I'm actually rewarded for deserting myself. So you, you want to pick yourself up? No, no, no. You're going to get rewarded mm -hmm. by deserting yourself. Here, try this behavior. Try this substance. Another part of the vicious cycle is that, that we find ourselves abandoning ourselves when we're trying to be true to ourselves. And that still small voice is not happy about that. It's going, Odie, Bob, why aren't you listening to me? Hmm. And yeah. even if it's slight, that voice is unhappy. And you know what I can do with that? I can also quell that voice by mm -hmm. my addictive behaviors. Yeah. I can remember any number of times as I was getting ready to engage in addictive behaviors around alcohol and other drugs, is that I would, I would tell myself beforehand, don't do this because you know this isn't true to yourself. That was my still small voice. Mm. And you know what happened after I had a couple of drinks or a couple of drugs, whatever it was? That voice was gone. Yeah. It was gone. Mm -hmm. It was gone. Yeah. And so the vicious cycle, is, it continues on its way. So a couple of exercises as we wind up today for you all. And Odie, you and I can talk about these. Yeah. I'd encourage you to journal an instance, and you can do this today. Uh, 
Uh, you can do it after our meeting today. Journal an instance in which your deserting yourself was rewarded. And I'm going to tie this into talking about addictive behaviors, is that whether I lost an audition mm -hmm. or I lost something else that was highly of value to me, I actually rewarded myself with addictive behaviors. So you, you begin to create this kind of, of a stimulus response. The stimulus being, I don't feel good about deserting myself, but now I'm going to reward myself with an addictive high. Mm. And so that gets chained or linked. And so you learn that it's kind of like that example I gave earlier. If you're rewarded for being sick, guess what you'll be a lot of? Sick. sick. If I reward myself for deserting myself, guess what I'll do? Desert yourself. I'll desert myself. So I ask you to reflect on that for a moment. And then a corollary to that is the next exercise. I'm going to leave us with these exercises for today and ask you to, to uh, engage in these. And I'm going to tie in next week's presentation to uh, my leaving you with these exercises. These are not fun exercises, but what we're trying to do is to raise into conscious awareness, like you did, Odie, mm -hmm. trying to raise into conscious awareness something that's like it's of the order of a knee-jerk reflex. Mm -hmm. It's so automatic. If we can become, if we can slow down the frames, become slightly more conscious of it, that's half the battle won. And mm -hmm. so the second part of raising this to consciousness, the first one is times that we've rewarded ourselves for self-desertion. What I also ask you, can you think of examples where you've abandoned your own truth? You've abandoned your own still small voice. Mm -hmm. And what that felt like. So I can reward myself because everybody else does this, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but even then, there's some voice inside that eventually will come back up and remind me. You talked about this with your own addictive behaviors. Yeah. certainly know this personally. I could quell that voice by getting high or loaded, right. but it would always come back. It would come back. Mm -hmm. and it would manifest as guilt, which is, I shouldn't have done that, which is accurate. Yeah. But the guilt would quickly move into shame for me, which is that what kind of person am I to have done that? Yeah. And as we said earlier, what, what do you guess I would do about that? <laughs> back into the yeah. sinkhole, back into the addiction. So can you think of an instance where you abandon your truth, where you turned your back on that still small voice, and what that felt like? If we stayed here today with the presentation, this would be one of our more depressing podcasts. <laughs> France and Austin are weeping as we're talking about this material. I see the tears. <laughs> I, do, I do too. <laughs> in fact, Austin was weeping so much it shorted out the computer, so we had to write down what we wrote. <laughs> no, it's, it's really important, you guys. And I, I write here in this slide, there's, there's a caveat, which is just a warning or an alert here, is that shame, as we've been talking about, is the unthought known. Shame does not want to be busted and made, brought out into the light of day. And so when you do that, when I do this with you right here, when we do this with ourselves, if you'll write down in journal examples from those two exercises I just gave you, what you're doing is exposing it to the light of day. The example I have is, for anybody who's a photographer, and I'm not, but I do know this, if you <laughs> expose film, let's say that you've, you've taken a photograph or a series of photographs, and you pull that film out of the camera into the light of the day, what happens to the, the images? 
burns. It burns. They get melted away. You yeah. lose the images. Mm -hmm. That's the way shame is. Mm -hmm. If you can pull shame out of the camera, which is the secrecy, it wants to hide. It likes to hide in darkness. If you can pull it into the light of day, it will actually evaporate the images, or at least it's a long stride towards that. So mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is make shame the thought known. This image that I have here is of a book that, that came out called The Examined Life. We're talking about examining our lives. That's a mm -hmm. phrase from Socrates who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the examined life, and the subtitle of that is the subtitle of our presentation today, How We Lose and Find Ourselves. How we lose ourselves is easy enough to understand, mm -hmm. is, we, is that quickly enough we can give up on ourselves, and how we find ourselves is beginning to listen to that still small voice and build the strength of our response to that. It doesn't happen overnight, but yeah. you know about this in your own life around addiction, I do too. Yeah. Is that every day that I put between me and that addictive behavior, that still small voice gets fortified, gets stronger. Yep. And that's how we begin to find ourselves again. I don't want to assume that this happens easily. It didn't for you and it didn't for me. Absolutely Next not. week's presentation, we're calling Practice Makes Perfect. Mm. And we're gonna talk about ways of practicing finding ourselves. And so today has been about understanding how we give up on our birthright, mm -hmm. how we lose ourselves, how we lose the spirit within ourselves. And it's pernicious, and we're talking about it under the rubric of shame. But the good news is that we can vanquish that over time. We can heal from that. You talked about it earlier when an old reflex for you became less and less reflexive. Yep. And so what we want to turn, turn is turn those reflexes into reflections. Yes. If I can reflect consciously on this, that's half the battle and that's not all of it. We have to build good habits. That's the subject of next week is practice makes perfect. Sounds good. Are there any final questions from our audience? Any comments? Not at this time. Want to encourage all of you to like what we just did, <laughs> if you did. You're very welcome to write in to Austin uh, through Ask Addiction Specialist uh, or YouTube. These, these our, our podcasts are on, on video. You can write questions to Odie and myself. Mm -hmm. You can also write to my, my uh, uh, website, which we'll put up in just a second, drbobweathers.com, and there's a section there where you can write questions. And some of you do, and I appreciate that. Thank you for bearing with us. Today is looking at the dark side, how we lose ourselves we're on this planet. Yeah. You're living truer to that in your life, including your relationships, and I want to do the same. And I want to empower any of you who are in addiction or in recovery. I want to help strengthen you in your resolve to move towards that. We'll be talking about skillful means next week. I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Odie. I thank always you. appreciate you being here. Thank you for appreciate your Appreciate you inviting me yeah, it's every great, day. Great, great <laughs> to, every yeah, thank you. It's great <laughs> to have you. I want to thank again, Franz, for your work here. Austin, you too. Thank you, guys. Uh, come back next week and join us. We'll be here. Uh, practice makes perfect. Okay, good luck with the journaling this week. And reach out if you have any questions or comments. Take care. Bye-bye for now. See you.